The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. And while Pastor Matt is in the Himalayas delivering the gospel to a remote village up there, our college pastor, Eric Keeling, will be bringing a message from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that he's entitled, How Should We Then Live? Let's join Pastor Eric. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, Romans is by far one of the most packed books in all of Scripture. Um, An amazing uh, epistle given to us. Um, But in Romans 12, 1 and 2 are probably two of my favorite verses in all of the Scripture. Um, If you've spent any time with me over the years, you've probably heard me quote it to you at some point or another um, because it is an amazing reminder So let me read for us Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The title of our message this morning is How Should We Then Live? It comes from a book by a great author by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And the reason I chose this title is because by adding the word then, he completely changes the question. The question is not simply how should we live? This is a question that that you hear often. This is a question that even those outside of the church will ask themselves. How should we live? How are we supposed to to live in this world? And unfortunately, what most of our culture thinks of this question is, is skewed, is missing the point. You know, we are surrounded by a world that simply asks the question, how should we live? And with that, you get thoughts along the lines of, well, you know, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Or, well, if that makes you happy, you should go ahead and, and do that. When the question is simply, how, then should, how should we live, you get answers like that. But by adding the then, it changes the entire question. It changes the, the premise. He is forcing his readers to look at some other criteria and making their assertion about how we are to live. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in Romans 12. As he starts this verse, he begins with, therefore. Paul is forcing his readers to consider what has come before. What has come ahead of what I'm about to tell you? You need to take these things into account as you consider what I'm about to say. We've all heard the line when reading your Bible that if you come upon a therefore, you should stop and say, Why is the there? what's the therefore, therefore? We, we need to ask ourselves a question, what is it here for? What is it that the author wants us to understand? What is he pulling off of? Charles Hodge, in speaking about these verses, says that the significance, I'll give you his quote up here, um, the significance of the therefore, he says, all the doctrines of justification, grace, election, and final salvation taught in the preceding part of the epistle, chapters 1 through 11, 
are made the foundation for the practical duties enjoined in this. You know, I, I first started teaching the Bible um, on a regular basis about 13 years ago, give or, give or take some, uh, teaching primarily to uh, junior high kids and then also to the home study uh, that I started with the Johnson family that later became Faith to Faith Fellowship. I want to say that it was at least five years into teaching before I was even willing to consider teaching Romans. I, I was terrified of, of Romans because, like I said, it is packed full of so much doctrine, so much truth, so much amazing truths about our Lord. As Charles Hodge said, you have subjects like justification, grace, election, among many others that are found in this amazing epistle. And it was overwhelming to me at first, the thought of teaching those things, the thought of of leading people and understanding what those truths mean, their significance. But as we begin to understand those things, as we begin to understand the significance of justification, the significance of God's grace and election, our lives are changed. We'll never be the same. One more quote before we get into the passage. James Boyce says this. James Boyce says, True conversion makes a difference in a person's life. If there are no differences... There is no genuine conversion. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a call for all true converts to live differently. It's a call that all those who would believe what has come before, all the amazing doctrines and truths of, of Romans chapters 1 through 11, that they would live differently. I want to share briefly with you about three of those truths. I want to talk about three of those truths that are the foundation of this therefore that we find in the epistle. The first one I want to talk about is justification. What does it mean to be justified? We, we need to understand what the significance of that is. Justification means that we have been declared right. We have been declared just, made right in the sight of God. You have passages, amazing passages in the scripture. 1 Corinthians uh, 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You have Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God... By, death, by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. You see, and there you have it. We were enemies of God. We were at enmity with God. We were separated from God. We were living in darkness. We were living in sin. And the payment that was due was death. The payment that was due for our sin was death. But God sent His Son to die on a cross to make payment on our behalf and we are now justified. You are made right in the sight of God. You are reconciled to a holy God. Justification is an amazing thing. That is a heavy truth. That is a serious truth. And understanding that truth will 
and should inevitably change the way we think and the way we live. Secondly, we look at grace. We say, what is grace? Uh, I'll never forget, I was younger. Uh, I was, I think, probably about 20 years old or so, and I asked uh, Eric Cragg if he would disciple me. Um, I'd been coming to the church for a handful of years and um, just knew I, I wanted to grow, I wanted to understand more. Eric was a reasonable guy to go to. He understood a lot. And I remember uh, sitting with him in the house that, that first day, and the first thing he said to me is, do you want a copy of Ryrie's Systematic Theology? No, we'll go get one. I said, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll go get that. And then he had me sit down and, and look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he said, okay, I want you to look at this verse and, and find 50 observations. 50 observations? And he's like, yeah, Okay, you know, I'll give it a shot. And so I sat there for probably about an hour and a half and came up with somewhere around 25. And I was like, that's pretty good. I was, I was actually pretty happy with myself, 25 observations and a little verse. So I was like, okay. And he looked and he said, no, there's, there's more. Yeah, there, there's more in there. I said, okay, well, thank you, Eric. That was, it was a rough experience being discipled by Eric, I'll tell you that. But, but I'll never forget, he and I were talking one day about grace. And, and uh, he was trying to help me to understand what biblical grace is all about. And he said, he goes, here's a, just an easy little definition to help you remember. He said, God's riches at Christ's expense. So that's what, that's what biblical grace is all about. We have received God's riches all that is God's at the expense of Christ on the cross. That is grace. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve, something that we have not earned and cannot earn. That is what grace is. And then you have passages like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3, verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And lastly, Romans 11.6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You see, grace is an amazing thing. Grace is an amazing gift that God has poured out. We are saved by grace through faith. The Scripture is so very clear of that point. As you read through the book of Romans, you will be overwhelmed by the amount of grace that God has poured out upon His children. He is a God of grace. How then can we save that we are, say that we are saved by grace, this amazing gift that we didn't deserve, God's riches at Christ's expense, and continue living the same as we always have? The answer is simple. We can't. We cannot. And then lastly, we look at election. And I know that election is a bit of a controversial topic, some people struggle with this idea, and yet the fact of the matter is the Scripture teaches uh, 
the elect. There are those who are elect, chosen by God. Matthew 24, verses 22 through 24 say this, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, you look here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring a charge... Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The scripture is clear. There are those who are elect. The New Bible Dictionary defines election this way. It says, The act of choice whereby God picks an individual or group out of a larger company for a purpose or destiny of his own appointment. That is what election is all about. God choosing some out of a larger group for his own purpose, for his own plan, by his own appointment. There are the elect, those who have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. So right now, I want you just to to think about those three things for a second. I want you to think about the fact that, that if you are a child of God, that you were chosen by Him before the foundations of the world. You were chosen by God before the foundations of the world. That you were at enmity with God. That you were living only for yourself. And while you were in that state, He sent His Son to die on your behalf. That you might be justified, declared righteous, made right with the Holy God. And that you deserve none of this that you cannot earn it, but that He poured out His amazing grace upon you. In light of these things, Paul writes Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In light of these things, Paul says again, Therefore, in light of those things, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In light of those truths, the first thing that Paul calls us to do is to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That is a call to all true children of God. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Because you were chosen by God, because you were justified by God, because He has poured out His amazing grace upon you, you are to lay down your life as a sacrifice to Him. Paul uses two specific words in describing the way in which we are to present our bodies. First, he says that we are to lay our own body down as a living sacrifice. When we think back to the sacrifices that the Jews were performing in the Old Testament, they would bring the animals to the priest and the the priest would, would cut the throats, they would bleed the animals out, they would lay them on the altar, these dead animals, and then they would burn them up. It was a, a picture of, of what was to come later, in essence. And yet we, we think about that picture of sacrifice and we're called to something different here. 
there is a difference between those type of sacrifices and a living sacrifice. Because a living sacrifice has the ability to squirm, to move around, to get up off the altar. A living sacrifice is a willing sacrifice. A living sacrifice is laying himself down on that altar. None of those animals ever chose to lay down their lives to God for the Jewish people. But that's exactly what Paul is calling us to do here, to willingly lay down our lives to God. It's a response. My sister and I were uh, talking a little over a month ago, and she was sharing with me about how my my niece and nephew, who are 12 and 9 respectively, uh, the two of them had decided that they wanted to get baptized. Um, and she was a little unsure as to whether they really understood uh, what baptism was all about. And so she asked me if I would come and, and talk with them and make sure that they, they had a, a good understanding of baptism. And so I was talking with my nephew, Luke, the nine-year-old, and as we were going through the fact that he is a sinner, an enemy, an enemy of God's, and that the, the payment for that that was due him was death, which he didn't like very much, um, we, we talked a, about that and and he understood that he was a sinner. He understood that, that, that he didn't always obey mom and dad, that he didn't always show respect, that he was looking out for himself. And then we talked about while he was that sinner, while he was in that state, that God sent his son, that he sent Christ to, to die on a cross to, to make that payment, to, to make that payment to, to bring Luke back into right relationship, into fellowship with God. And then he rose again three days later, showing his victory over death, and he said that he, he believed those things. He understood that Jesus died for him. He believed that he died on the cross, that his sins were paid for. And so I asked him, I said, if you, if you believe that, I said, are, are you still supposed to be good? Are you still supposed to obey mom and dad? And he, uh, he said, yeah. You know, and his, his answer, but it was, it was more than that. I, I was astounded because I, I looked at him and I, I said, why? Are you, are you trying to, to earn something? Are you trying to earn that, that payment that was made? And, and he said, no. He looked me in the eyes and he said, I should obey mom and dad. I, I should seek to be good to show my appreciation to God for what he did in sending his son to die for me. And I said, wow, that's That's right. I go, it's a response. We live differently in response to what has been done on our behalf. Secondly, Paul describes a sacrifice as not only a living one, but a holy one. Holy, set apart. There's something, uh, this is something that we do after the fact. After God has chosen us, after he has justified us and poured out his grace upon us, um, this is something we could not do before that. This sacrifice isn't like any other sacrifice laying down your life for some other purpose besides your own goes against everything the world tells us. You may even have believing friends who would say to you, well, that's just a little, a little too much. You're going a little too far, maybe. Unfortunately, living holy lives is, is something that's frowned upon in our culture. And, and, and it's a, a sad commentary, even within some churches, it seems. You know, I can't tell you how many times I, I know people who are 
seeking to live holy lives, set apart from God, different than the world, and they're labeled legalistic. They're labeled too too harsh, too serious. You know, verse 1 finishes with the phrase, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our lives laid down for God and His purposes is pleasing and acceptable to Him. Our lives are the only acceptable sacrifice to God. We can't give Him half. We can't give Him a piece of ourselves. We can't give Him our half-hearted offers. The only thing that He will accept is our whole lives. That isn't acceptable to God just to give Him a piece. And then in verse 2, He goes on and He says, uh, and this is a verse that that so many people know um, and may even be able to quote, but for some reason have a difficult time taking it seriously. But Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world. As children of God, our lives should not look the same as the rest of the world. This applies to every aspect of our lives. We should not be looking to to fit into the world around us. But it's more than just trying to, to fit in that Paul is speaking about here. What he's saying is that even if we're not trying to fit in, we shouldn't look at the world's way of handling things or the world's way of understanding things and give those things a shot. We shouldn't try to do things the way the world does. And there are so many lies that are being sold out there. You know, on Thursday night, I was sitting with a handful of uh, the college students after we had finished study, and we were talking about dating relationships and high school and young adults and all this type of stuff. And, and um, it's a difficult topic. And as I was talking with them, they were sharing with me some of their experiences within high school and, and even amongst their peers and talking about how the, the common thought was that you needed to date you know, a lot of people. You needed to, to date people so that you could figure out what it was that you're looking for in a spouse. You need, you need to get out there and, and play the field, you know, and, and see what's out there. That's, that's scary, you know, and, and what's even more scary was my childhood because it was way different than that because even then it was, it was taken a step further, you know, that you, you may as well go ahead and you need to have sex with somebody so that you can make sure you're compatible. You know, these, these are the lies that the world is, is selling to us, you know, and... and it's a lie from the pit of hell. But these are the things that are being said, and, and even within Christian high schools. You know, we are not to be conformed to this way of thinking. We are not to fall for the lies of the enemy. There are so many other ways that this can look. I want to encourage each of you guys to, as you go about your day-to-day, to, to stop and, and ask yourself the question, in, in what ways am I conforming to the world around me? In what ways am, am I fitting into the world's way, the world's view of things? Thankfully, Paul gives us a key to, to this whole thing, though. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the mind is what is at the heart of the issue. Even in the be, being conformed to this world, that centers around wrong thinking, So the way that we are transformed, the way that we are different is by renewing our minds. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to renew my mind? Our mind is where the change begins. 
the thing I want to challenge you with this morning also is, is how can we expect to make wise, God-honoring decisions if we are allowing filth into our minds? How can we expect to make wise, God-honoring decisions if we're allowing filth into our minds? After becoming a Christian, I used to think that I could still handle allowing certain things into my mind. I used to think that I, those things didn't really affect me. The music I was listening to, the, the shows I was watching, the movies I was watching. And I remember I was teaching junior high in our trailers that we used to have out there. And I was sharing that with a group of junior high students. that I could still watch those things and it didn't affect me. I have no idea why I would even say such a thing. But, but I was saying that to, to a group of junior hires and, and one of the leaders yelled out and said, that's not true. I was a little upset, <laughs> to say the least. I was embarrassed. But I've come to realize that she was right. Those things that we allow into our mind, they affect us. They, they do. Why do we suppose that we can allow old things into our minds that they won't have an effect on us? That's just naive thinking. And the worst part of it is that once there's something in there, it's, it's pretty much always there. It's so hard to get that stuff out. It's, it's pretty much stuck. I can't tell you how long ago I stopped listening to secular music. It was a long time ago. I, the Lord kind of took that from me. And, um, but I, I, I'll go into a restaurant and hear some of the songs that I used to listen to, and I can sing every word of it for you. You know, that stuff still, it's just, it's right there. It doesn't go away. You know, those, the things that we watch, they, they don't go away. And as we think about all that we allow into our minds, the songs that we listen to, the shows that we watch, the conversations even that we have with coworkers or friends, whether we realize it or not, each and every one of those things are coloring the way in which we make our decisions. So how do we renew our minds? We renew our minds by spending time in the Word. Spending time with God in His Word. We need to be filling our minds with the truths of the Scripture so that when we are tempted to live like the world, when we are tempted to follow after those things, we will recognize it and turn and run. Rather than looking to fit into the world, Paul tells us that we are to be transformed. We are to become something completely different than what the world looks like, than what the world understands and accepts. Why are we to do this? So that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the reason. You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a child of God, and you live in such a way that you don't show that to be true, you're in trouble. You, you think about how can, we, how can we not live differently and expect the world to want anything that we have? You know, and to take us back to the beginning, were you chosen by God before the foundations of the world? Have you been justified by God, by the work of Christ on the cross? Have you experienced the grace of God poured out in your life? Prove it in how you live. Prove it. If we tell people all those things are true and yet we look exactly like them, what are we telling them about our God? We're, we're telling him that he doesn't have any power to change us. He has no power to affect us. Why would they even want anything to do with him? If he's made no difference in our life, why should they expect him to make a difference in theirs? 
That's what they're thinking. And if that's what the world thinks when they look at us, then my friends, we're not proving what the will of God is. Because His will is that we would not live like the world. His will is that we would be conformed into the image of Christ, not into the likeness of this world. And so I want to leave you again with that quote. One more time, I want you to think about this quote as you go out today by James Boyce. True conversion makes a difference in a person's life. If there are no differences, there's no genuine conversion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you for just the, the amazing, amazing things that we find in there. Or the, the, the realization that, that we have been chosen before the foundations of the world. That we have been justified by you, made right, reconciled to our holy God. And that you have poured out your grace upon us in sending your Son each and every day. A gift that we, we do not deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense. Father, we, we are humbled. And I pray for each of us that as we go out from this place that we would... Lord, that we would go out purposing to, to live differently. Father, that we would that we would long to, to not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would draw near to you and to your word, and that we would allow it to do its work. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces and divides. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.